Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to a new series of The Locals Podcast, Talking France. Thanks for joining us for what is the first episode of the autumn. Although it feels like the middle of summer in France this week, given the scorching temperatures across much of the country, we are all refreshed, rested and slightly sunburned, if we're honest, and eager to get going again, discussing the big talking points in France, as well as decoding some of the important cultural and practical questions around life in the country. There is, of course, lots to talk about in France now that everyone is back to work, including the country's politicians who are already involved in an almighty route about clothing. We'll start the show this week by looking at what la rentrée means in France this year. We'll also explain why property taxes have shot up in France and what that means for homeowners. And the Rugby World Cup kicks off in France on Friday. We'll get the lowdown on what is a huge event taking place around the country. And we'll also have news about a well-known French film star who's been in the headlines this week. And stay tuned to the end to find out why the French spend so much time eating and drinking. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined once again for the new series by the local Francis Emma Pearson and Jen Mansfield, as well as French politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, it's good to be back. Now, regular listeners will know we don't really do small talk in this show. We don't really like to talk to each other, but we do like to offer some recommendations and tips when appropriate. Look, we've all been to different parts of France over the summer. Any worthwhile suggestions for readers, listeners from you, Jen, start us off? Yeah, so each summer we usually go to Brittany, which is where my partner's family is from. But I've talked about that already a few times on the podcast. It's great. Absolutely. Do you ever go anywhere other than Brittany, Jen? Yes, I did this summer. Go on then. (laughs) And we went to Cap Ferrat. Uh, which is right next to Bordeaux. And um, it's kind of like this beach town, uh, really known for oyster production, really beautiful, a little bougie, but still quite nice. Honestly, I had a really nice time. We did a day trip there and I got 14 oysters for seven euro and they were giant. They were the biggest oysters I've ever eaten. And it was amazing. Mm, Okay, fair enough. Uh, There's nothing wrong with Brittany, of course. I should say I love Brittany. No, Brittany's great. Uh, I normally do go there. This year I went to the Alps actually and uh, hired a camper van, which is quite popular these days. Someone actually said to me, why the hell would you want to go from a pokey Paris apartment into an even pokier camper van? Which is a fair point, actually, for the summer. But um, it is, of course, the great outdoors. We used a company called roadsurfer.com, picked it up near Geneva. You can actually get these all around France. They have bases in Nantes, Bordeaux, Toulouse, I believe, Lyon. We got ours near Geneva. And it's great. We spent a week going around the high Alps, staying at different um, camping spots. It's pricey. It's popular. It's pricey. I think we paid 1300 and that included a premium for good weather. We paid to ensure we had good weather, <laughs> which if you didn't have good weather, it probably would be a nightmare holiday. Luckily, we had we, we kind of missed the rain and missed the heat wave and just got perfect sunshine in the Alps. Really recommend it. Emma, you're kind of smiling at me going, what the hell would you go in a camper van for? It does definitely test your organisational and habits. You know, you can't leave your pants and socks around a camper van for two or three days like you can 
at home, but um, I'm getting the impression you're not that interested in my suggestion. But um, what have you got for us, Emma? Uh, well, I was also in the Alps. I would not in a camper van or not a tent. in a camper van. No, in a chalet. Um, right. I would contest actually your description that we're all relaxed and refreshed. Uh, you oh. are because you've been on holiday for the whole summer. Jen and I have been here in Paris keeping the show on the road while you've been off in your I camper van. I had three van. weeks. Uh, <laughs> let's get this straight. Um, but so Jen and I have just had like a couple of weekends away, not yeah. together, but with yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, but I was also in the Alps actually in a chalet near to Aix-les-Bains, uh, which is in Savoie. Okay. Uh, did you know Aix-les-Bains has a very British connection? It was apparently the favourite spa town of Queen Victoria. And they have this really cute little sort of British corner. They have a statue of Queen Victoria. They have a Union Jack flag. They have a red British phone box uh, and a little plaque explaining why this small corner of the French Alps will be fair for England. It's very cute. Interesting. We never made it to Exliban. We did make it to one place that I discovered totally off the beaten track. I don't think anyone's heard of it. It is magnificent. Probably my new favourite place in France, Annecy. Anyone heard of Annecy? <laughs> of course. Of course. It was inundated with tourists like me, but it actually beat my expectations. I'd heard a lot about it, saw a lot of fit photos, but it was better than did you swim? I expected. Yeah, swimming in the lake. It's beautiful. The mountains just surrounding it. It's Stunning. I mean, it, I reckon everyone's. I'm probably the last person to go there. Actually, it's you know, it's gorgeous. It's really pretty in the winter as well. It's yeah. like a yeah. perfect winter and summer place. Uh, we didn't swim in any lakes because actually our chalet had a pool outside, which was. Uh, oh, who's had an easy summer? You're complaining nice. about not being relaxed. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of these places that obviously the the traditional tourism in the Alps is the winter, but lots of places are like really trying to sort of refurbish themselves to attract summer mm. tourism because the snow is no longer reliable. So it was one of those places, the little chalet that we are in, it had a garden, it had a pool outside, it had a sunbathing area, it had a, a pitonk pitch so we could play some, some pitonk. It was gorgeous. My only complaint is in the evenings, the cows come down from the mountains with their bells and you start off thinking, oh, this is nice, this is pastoral. Then you think, they're really, really loud cow bells. I could barely concentrate on my book. It was terrible. I think we've talked on this podcast about Parisians going to French rural France and complaining about cowbells and chickens and cocks. You are that person, yeah, aren't you? And you've slagged these people off in the past and now you're owning up. Uh, I was slagging Unbelievable. off the cows. It's just unnecessarily loud. It has a name. It's called agro-bashing. Yeah. Right, Macron needs to stop cows from mooing this autumn. Right, look, we should move on. The rentrée has begun. After almost two months, the kids are finally back in school. You could hear the relief from parents and grandparents across France on Monday. But there has been one controversial subject at the start that's dominated the start of this school year. Jen, over to you. Yes, so you are correct. The rentrée scolaire has begun, which means that the 2023-2024 school year is in full force. And yeah, there are a few other topics that people have been talking about, um, like adding an extra hour of mathematics for kids in sixième, uh, which is sixth grade or the start of secondary school. And there's also been some discussion about teacher shortages. But like you said, Ben, there's really one topic that everyone seems to be focused on in France, and that is abayas. If you don't know what an abaya is, it's an overgarment, often loose, kind of worn from the shoulders down to the feet. Uh, it's typically worn by Muslim women and girls, but they're commonly worn throughout a lot of the Muslim world, uh, including Africa, the Middle East, and the Arabian Peninsula. A lot of times they're paired with a headscarf or hijab, but some people wear them on their own. And everyone is talking about these dresses because France's new education minister, Gabriel Attal, announced in August that they would be banned in French schools. And this has sparked a huge new debate over secularism across French society. So as a recap, France passed a law in 2004 banning kids from wearing overt signs of religious affiliation in school based on the principle of laicite, or secularism. So basically, this means that pupils cannot wear headscarves, kippas, or large crosses in school. Before the ban, abayas were sort of seen as this gray area. 
So on Monday, the first day of the new school year, Gabriela Tal told BFM TV that nearly 300 girls showed up wearing a bias despite the new ban. And even though the majority of them did agree to change out of the dress, 67 still refused and ended up being sent home from school. Yes, Atal said the girls refused entry were given a letter addressed to their families saying that secularism is not a constraint, it is a liberty. President Emmanuel Macron defended the controversial measure saying there was a minority in France who hijack a religion and challenge the republic and secularism, leading to the worst consequences. Jen, this isn't an entirely new debate, is it? We've discussed it even on this podcast a few months ago. Yeah, it's not. Well, secularism in itself is a, is a long-standing debate in France. And you're correct. Um, the former education minister, Papin Jai, met with the heads of France's school districts a few months ago to push them to be more ambitious when it comes to enforcing secularism in schools, particularly regarding the abaya. Even though he referenced abayas as religious clothing at the time, Papinjai didn't go so far as to ban them in schools because he didn't want to send out specific dimensions and rules for distinguishing between abayas and similar looking long dresses. But this has sort of been the crux of the debate. The French Council of Muslim Worship refers to the abaya as a cultural symbol rather than a religious one. But French government officials do see abayas as a clear sign of Muslim faith. Gabriel Attal actually said that abayas should no longer be worn in French schools because you should not be able to walk into a classroom and identify the pupils' religions just by looking at them. Mm, This is a good time to bring in John Litchfield, our French politics expert, who joins us once again from Normandy for this new series of Talking France. Hi, John. It's good to have you back. John, it's the start of the school year in France. President Emmanuel Macron has said he wants to use his second term in office to reform schools. The chronic problem of teacher shortages persists, and yet the big announcement has been this ban on the abaya that Jen has been describing for us. Did the French government really need to do this, John? Right now, maybe not. I mean, you know, you look at the first day when it was applied, and uh, I think just under 300, 298 people in the whole of France turned up with a bias. That's, I worked out, 0.002% of kids. So is that a real threat to French secular life? You could say that. But I mean, uh, you know, the fact is there is a law uh, which was passed in 2004 and has been more or less successful in the sense it's not really being contested and it has resolved an issue which was a serious issue at the time as to whether or not uh, kids could wear headscarves essentially in in school Um, and that's been more or less solved as an issue and this growing but not enormously widespread tendency for some um, Muslim children to wear abayas or in the case of the boys uh, kameez, long dress, long robe as well is, I think, clearly a challenge to that law, another way of saying we're Muslims and we, we don't accept the secularity of your education system. We insist on wearing these clothes to show that. I mean, not every single child that wears them may think that, but it seems to be um, definitely a movement in that direction. So, yes, I think they had to deal with it, whether it was the most pressing issue in French education system. No, not at all. And it should not be as a, 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 a sort of robe a veil to cover the other problems in the system. John, there's been accusations towards the government that there was an ulterior motive for them passing this reform, suggesting that, you know, they've done this simply to appease far-right voters. Well, you know, how do you appease far-right voters? I think only getting rid of Muslims, not getting rid of a bias, would appease far-right voters. It may appeal to some right-wing voters that are sort of marginal between Macron and and, uh, and the Republican. But, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, the polling on this, 80% of French people think this is a good idea, that the bias should be 
clearly banned, but it should be explicitly stated that it, it comes under the 2004 law. And that's like 70 percent of French voters, even uh, of left-wing voters, even well over 50 percent of the LFI voters even uh, think this is a good idea, even though their leadership is shrieking about it and saying that it is a, a racist act and a distraction and as you say, a nod to the far right. So, you know, a distraction from other problems in the system, yes. Uh, and a, 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 a statement that the government is tough on certain things, which appeals, appeals to, to the right, and, uh, and I suppose come some of the far right, yes. But I don't think that was the, the main intention. Yes, we will see what happens with this. The Association for Muslim Rights in France has challenged the ban and they had a hearing with the State Council on Tuesday. And France's Council of the Muslim Faith were also considering putting its own complaint before the State Council. So we may not have heard the end of this issue. But Emma, la rentrée isn't just about going back to school, is it? It means a lot more than that in France. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I don't have kids and I left school some time ago, um, but I've still been talking about la rentrée a lot recently. Technically, the return to school is la rentrée scolaire, whereas la rentrée encompasses all sorts of groups. And it's a kind of a, a general national back to work after the summer holidays. There's a, a strong culture in France of taking a summer holiday of at least a couple of weeks in July or August. Over the summer, the cities empty out, life kind of slows down a bit. So September is when everybody gets back to work, offices and shops reopen. You'll have lots of conversations about where people have been on holiday. It's actually quite a social time of year, I find. You know, you can expect plenty of invitations to rentre drinks, you know, just to catch up with friends you haven't seen for a bit, hear about their holidays, that kind of thing. There's also la rentrée politique. The politicians also come back to work and governments usually sort of present a new programme for the next 11 months in September. So you can expect a lot of sort of splashy new policy ideas like the Abaya thing that we were just talking about and generally politicians clogging up the news when you turn on the TV. There's also uh, what they call la rentrée littéraire, which is basically this time of year is the bumper time for publishing new books. Uh, that's because the literary awards take place in the winter, so all of the big books come out at this time of year. And as well as the sort of practical sense of getting back to normal, I think there's also a bit of a spirit of la rentrée. It's when people might take up new hobbies, join new clubs or sort of make resolutions that they'll this will be the year they'll get fit or they'll finally learn how the French subjunctive works or something like that. It's kind of like the French version of New Year. New Year obviously does exist in France, but I think it's less of a big deal than it is in Anglophone countries. So La Rentrée is the time for renewal and new starts. Indeed. I think this is a good time to bring back John Litchfield on the subject of La Rentrée politique in France. Now, this time last year, we were talking about the upcoming social strife expected due to Macron's plan to reform pensions. That issue seems to pretty much die down since it came into law. But John, what lies ahead? Is there any other contentious reforms that could provoke more industrial action? Uh, industrial action? No, I don't see that. But I, I think it could certainly be a very uh, troubled uh, autumn and, and early next year. I mean, you know, the, the problem remains the problem it was a year ago, that, that there is a minority government, doesn't have a majority in the National Assembly. In a sense, by using its constitutional powers, which are perfectly constitutional, uh, have been used many times before to push through the pension reform, the government is a sense use that weapon in a way that really annoyed a lot of people that perhaps didn't even realise that the powers existed in, in the case of some young people. The question is, can they use that again to, to push through other things? They're almost certainly going to have to do it even to get through the 2000, uh, 2024 budget, which is going to be a, a somewhat of an austerity budget with uh, cost-cutting measures, no tax cuts, we're told, uh, so as to try and bring France within the, the Eurozone uh, deficit and, and debt rules. The other big issue this uh, fall or 
autumn will be immigration. There is an immigration law which has been doing a hokey-cokey. First it's there, then it's not, then it's split, then it's back together again for several months now. And now we're told that that is going to come before the parliament uh, this fall. And that seems to be the one thing that Macron and Elizabeth Bourne are determined, apart from the budget, uh, for next year to get through. It's, it's supposed to be a kind of hard cop, soft cop immigration reform. It's, it's going to be tougher on people who who arrive illegally, uh, making it easier to, to uh, go through the legal processes to, to send them back, uh, reminiscent maybe some of what some of, the, some of the things that are happening in Britain. But at the same time, there's an acceptance in the original form of the law that some of the people who are here illegally are not bad people and might as well, if they want to, work and, and contribute to the system in a limited way in areas where there is shortage of labour, including entertainment, restaurant, hotels, construction and so on. That is absolutely anathema to the right who think it's going to attract even more migrants and so on. It's going to sort of um, lead to them being allowed to remain permanently, which it probably will. So can Macron get that part of it through? Will he have to drop that part of it and annoy his the left wing of his coalition? That, I think, will be the other big issue uh, this, this autumn. Before we move on, we just wanted to say thanks to all those listeners who've left positive reviews of Talking France or emailed us in with feedback. We really appreciate it. And a big thanks to those of you who are already or have recently become paying members of The Local because it's membership that has allowed us to return for another series of Talking France. We think it's great value for money. And remember, if you like what you hear on this podcast, you can find so much more information, context on France and advice for life in the country in all the articles we publish each day on the local.fr. Membership, of course, gives you unlimited access to this great resource. Now, one of France's best-known actors and film directors, Mathieu Kassovitz, has been the subject of breaking news alerts and scores of headlines this week. Jen, tell us what's happened. Yes, so Kassovitz is one of France's best-known directors and actors, and unfortunately we're talking about him a lot this week because earlier in the week he was in a serious motorcycle accident. Uh, basically what happened is that he was on a motorcycle training course in Essen, uh, which is near Paris, um, apparently training for an upcoming film role when the accident happened, and it left him with serious injuries. He was taken to a hospital in southern Paris, um, and his Situation had improved enough by Wednesday that he posted a video to social media thanking people who sent him messages of support and saying that he did not know that he had so many friends and that that was a pleasure. He said that he was out of surgery and set to be starting physical therapy for his broken femur and ankle. And the accident actually happened to take place the same week that his latest film, Visions, uh, with Diane Kruger, was set to be released. So Kasovitz is still encouraging people to go out and see it, even though he couldn't attend the premiere. Okay, that's good to hear. He is on the road to recovery. Mathieu Kasovitz is a huge name in France, but also elsewhere around the world. He'll be familiar to many film fans. Jen, tell us more. Yeah, that's very possibly because he either directed or has been in some of your favorite French movies and TV shows, and maybe you didn't even know. The first movie that you would recognize is La Haine, which is the 1995 drama which follows three young boys from the suburbs in the 24 hours after their friend was seriously injured by police. The movie shot in black and white, and it's just as relevant today as it was in 1995 when it comes to tackling issues of police brutality, classism, and racism. The film really is Kasovitz's claim to fame as a director, but few people realize that he actually also acted in the movie. He played a minor role of a skinhead toward the end of the film. If you've seen it, then you know which scene I'm talking about, but I won't give any spoilers. And then the next film that you'd recognize is 
Amélie, which was nominated for five Academy Awards. It's a whimsical film about the life of a Parisian waitress who works in Montmartre, and she loves to do good deeds to make other people's lives better. And you would recognize Kassovitz as her quirky love interest. And then there is the Bureau, or the Bureau des Légendes in French, and this is a French television series. It revolves around the lives of several agents of France's DGSE, which is basically the equivalent of the MI6 or the CIA. The series ran five seasons from 2015 to 2020, and Kasvitz had the starring role. It consistently makes all the lists for best French television series of all time, and in fact, it was actually one of two French series to be listed in the BBC's best 100 series of the 21st century. So definitely one to look out for if you haven't watched it before. And then you might also recognize him in some other English language movies like Steven Spielberg's film Munich from 2005, which tells the story of undercover Israeli operatives who try to assassinate the terrorists responsible for the Munich Olympics terrorist attack. So yeah, he's he's in a lot of films, both in France and internationally. Emma, I can see you're itching to say something about the Bureau yeah, as it happens, I've just finished watching Le Bureau de Légende. Um, I was lucky enough to get the box set of all five series for my birthday, and I finally finished it last week, and I'm still just in awe of how incredibly good it is. It's uh, really got everything. It's got, mm. you know, twists and turns. There's a love story. It's quite sort of artsy in places. It's just wonderful. Go out and see it. I agree. I agree. Let's tell everyone what happens in the final scene. <laughs> no, let's not no, do, right, that. Okay, we won't do that. Okay, thanks, Jen. Well, look, let's hope Mathieu Kasovitz makes a full recovery and gets back to doing what he does best. Speaking of what he does best, apparently his next project, there's going to be a musical version of La Haine, which he is doing. It's set to work uh, to go into Paris theatres next year. It sounds like kind of mad, but interesting. Yeah. Is Andrew Lloyd Webber involved? <laughs> I really hope not. <laughs> interesting. We'll keep an eye on that then. Let's move on to a very different subject, the Rugby World Cup. France has hosted some big events in recent years, such as the Euro 2016 football tournament and, of course, the Olympic Games head to Paris next summer. But on Friday, the Rugby World Cup will kick off on French soil. Emma, let's start with a big question. Tell us a bit more about where this is being held around France. Okay, so yeah, it's hosted in nine cities around France. The opening match and the finals and semi-finals, plus some of the pool stage games, will be at the Stade de France, just outside Paris. But the rest of the games are divided between Bordeaux, Lille, Lyon, Marseille, Nantes, Nice, Saint-Étienne and Toulouse. So it's you know very widely spread around the country. As well as hosting matches, each of those towns will also have a fan zone. So if you weren't able to get tickets, you can still soak up the atmosphere. I walked home via Place de la Concorde the other day, which is where the Paris fan zone is going to be. And it looks pretty impressive. They were just finishing building it. Are they showing um, games there? Yeah, all right. of the matches okay. will. All of the matches will be shown there. So there's like a couple of big screens. There's merchandise, food stalls. And I was pleased to note there are several beer stands. So there shouldn't be too long queues for the beer. Important. Important. Very important. I got some stats from the Interior Ministry this morning about the tournament. In total, they expect 2 million spectators, of which 600,000 will be fans travelling from outside of France. Wow. And across the country, between 5,000 and 7,000 police and gendarmes will be mobilised on match days just to make sure everything is goes smoothly. Right, so it starts on Friday. Uh, how long does it last for? Tell us a bit more about the dates and how long this uh, is going to go on for. It's almost two months, in fact. Uh, it starts on Friday. Two months? That's not a cut. That's a league season. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, it two starts, months. Wow. Starts on September the eighth, and it finishes on October twenty eighth. So wow, it's slightly okay. longer than usual, but yeah. they're prioritising having matches on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. Uh, partly to help the teams recover, but I think also to make it sort of easier for fans. Easier and, viewing. Yeah. yeah. So it's that reason as well. So yeah, starts this Friday. Opening match is France v New Zealand. That's on Friday night at the Stade de France. Big one. And before the match, we get the kind of opening ceremony. Some parts of this are still a secret, but we know that it stars the Oscar-winning French actor Jean Dujardin, mm-hmm. who is apparently a big rugby fan. And there's also going to be other famous names there from the world of acting, sport, fashion and patisserie. I think the idea is to present some sort of montage of all the things France is best at, but I guess we'll see what that will involve. And in parallel to the main tournament is the Wheelchair Rugby World Cup. This is entirely based in Paris and it is in the third week in October. And if you haven't seen any Wheelchair Rugby before, I really urge you to give this a go because not only are the tickets much easier to get hold of than they are for the Rugby World Cup, but the sport itself is just amazing, absolutely breathtaking. It's the most violent and intense sport I've ever seen. It's brilliant. Wow, we're going to have to check this out. Well, look, uh, any listeners, readers who are heading over for the Rugby World Cup, we hope you have a great time. Don't forget, get in touch if you want to. We will be pleased to hear from your experiences of the rugby tournament over the next two months in France. Thanks, Emma. Right, now moving on to a a subject that is close to many of our listeners. The annual tax foncière bills, the property tax paid by everyone who owns a home in France, have begun to arrive and many property owners are seeing a steep increase in their bills. France's National Association of Property Owners claimed this year's bills show the highest average increase in the last 36 years. Emma, this has been a big story in France. It's made, even made headlines in the UK, which I'll mention uh, shortly. It's a really important issue for readers and listeners. Just tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so the autumn is property tax bill season. There are two types of property tax in France. Tax foncière bills are being sent out now, and that's to everyone who owns property in France, regardless of whether you use it as your main residence, a second home, or whether you rent it out. The second type is the tax d'habitation. Uh, the bills for this will come out in November. They used to be sent to all occupiers, but they're being grad- they've been gradually phased out since 2019. So this year, only second homeowners will get a tax d'habitation bill. And the bad news is that it's quite likely that both of those will have increased on last year. Okay, let's start with tax foncière first. Okay, so... All tax foncière bills will have increased by at least 7%. That's the national level of increase. It's because of inflation and also because the rate hasn't been increased for several years. So it's just a steady year on year thing. However, local authorities also have the power to impose their own tax increases on top of the 7%, up to a maximum of 60%. Wow. So the places that have chosen to do the increase have naturally grabbed the headlines. So Paris has gone for a 59% increase, just 1% off the yeah, the max there. Uh, Grenoble's gone for 31.5% and Troyes has gone for 21.5%. But in fact, most communes have actually opted not to impose an increase above that basic 7%. But there are a couple of other reasons why your bill might be increasing. The first is if you've recently done any work on your home, uh, the tax is partly calculated based on the rentable value of your property. So like if you've had an extension built, for example, if you've added a swimming pool, that will increase the value of your property and therefore your tax will go up. The second is that it seems that quite a few tax offices were using out of date or even just wrong information to calculate their bills. People this year, as we know, have had to complete a property tax declaration that included details of their property. So in many cases, details have been updated 
it probably won't be much consolation to work property owners who are getting increased bills, but in most cases, it was actually the lower bills in the previous years that were too low, and mm. now they're correct. Interesting. But I appreciate that won't really help if you're looking at no. a, a bigger bill. When you get the bill, you will see the the value locative, the the rentable value, is listed on the bill. And if you think that that is incorrect, you can challenge your bill via your local tax office. Um, you can't challenge your local authorities' increase, but if you think it's based on the wrong value for your property, then you can challenge. It. And there's an article on the local website explaining how you would go about doing that. Indeed, there is. Okay, that's tax foncier. What about tax d'habitation? Yeah, this is the one that's seen the big change in recent years. It used to be the tax that the occupier paid. So, like, tenants would pay it. And if you were an owner occupier, you would pay both this and the tax mm. foncier. Emmanuel Macron decided in 2019 to scrap this tax. And it's been gradually phased out over the last few years, starting with the lowest earners. And this year, only one group will pay it, and that is second homeowners. It stays in place for second homeowners. But again, second homeowners might see an increase in their bills with this. Firstly, as with the tax foncier, it will increase if the value of your home has increased or if the tax office has updated details about your property. But if your second home is in an area that has a housing shortage, which is called a, a zone tendu, then local authorities can apply a surcharge of second homes, and that's up to a maximum of 60%. Okay, so how much are we talking here? Put some numbers on it. I know you're good with numbers, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it varies a lot because both of the taxes are worked out according to quite a complicated formula that takes into account the value of your property and the rate set by your local commune. So bills do vary a lot. But according to the finance specialists at Moneyvox, in 2022... The average annual tax foncière bill was €895, Euro, so that's €74 Euro a month if you opt to, to pay monthly. The département with the highest average annual property tax bill was Essonne in the Greater Paris region at 1351 and the lowest average bills were found in Andre at €565 Euro per year. When it comes to tax d'habitation, the annual average bill in 2022 was €772. Euro. Okay, now look, that headline I referred to earlier was in Britain's Daily Mail newspaper. It read, quote, We may have to sell our five-bedroom 15th century French house after Macron's second homeowner tax rate of 60%. Is this really Macron raiding the pockets of homeowners? Emma, what's going on? Why are they going up? <laughs> well, as ever with the, the Daily Mail, the story is not quite as uh, as in the headline. Yeah, I mean, this mostly relates to tax d'habitation. And as we said, for, for most people, they will no longer pay tax d'habitation. That's only second homeowners. When it comes to the tax foncier, which is paid by all property owners, there are really two reasons for the increase. That 7% increase that we talked about is just a regular inflation-related increase that happens happens every few years. The local increases are partly to do with tax d'habitation. Because most people no longer pay tax d'habitation, it's left local authorities with a hole in their budget. And some of them have chosen to recoup it by raising the tax foncière. When it comes to the, the tax d'habitation and the surcharge for second homeowners, that's relatively new. Uh, local authorities were given the power to impose this in 2021. And from 2025, it will also be extended to communes with fewer than 50,000 inhabitants. At the moment, it's only the bigger places that can impose it. First of all, an area has to be declared a housing shortage zone, so it needs to provide proof of a lackable, lack of affordable housing for local residents. And the extra tax surcharges are spent on creating more affordable homes for local people, because in some parts of France, it's a real problem. The areas that are so popular with tourists that locals are just priced out of the market. Local reader Tim Longstaff, for example, he lives in Haute-Savoie in the Alps. He told us that in his town, 40% of properties are second homes, and locals and seasonal workers really struggle to find any accommodation. There are some areas, especially in the Alps and along the 
Mediterranean is even higher than that. And in fact, there are four communes in the Alps where 90% of the properties are second homes or holiday rentals. Mm, okay, so what you're saying is basically there are other concerns for Macron to consider uh, other than a five-bedroom 15th century homes in France, basically. Basically, yeah. And I think also the thing to point out is that most second homeowners are French. So this isn't like targeted at British second homeowners. 90% of second homes in France are owned by French people. So this is much more targeting French people than mm. foreigners. Indeed. Thanks, Emma, for explaining what is a complicated subject. There is loads more online at the local.fr about this subject of property tax hikes in France. Now, a recent global study looked at how much time people spend eating and drinking in different countries. And out of all of the OECD countries, which includes Western Europe, the US, Canada, Australia, the French topped the table, even ahead of the likes of the Italians and the Spanish. Jen, are the French really the world's greatest eaters and drinkers? Explain this for us. Well, according to the OECD study, yes, they are. Uh, it found that on average, French people spend two hours and 13 minutes per day eating and drinking. In comparison, Americans came in last place. My fellow countrymen spend on average just one hour and two minutes each day eating and drinking. And we actually, we talked to some French people to hear about whether or not they actually spend over two hours at the table every day. And the results were a little bit mixed. So 30-year-old young professional Yassin told us that he usually skips breakfast, but takes 40 minutes for lunch if he eats by himself and an hour if he eats with others. And then dinner takes about the same amount of time. So that comes out to roughly two hours if he takes the higher end of the spectrum. For Yassin's friend Antoine, breakfast is five minutes at my desk in the morning, lunch takes one hour, and dinner is 45 minutes, coming out to one hour and 50 minutes spent eating and drinking per day. So almost two hours. And we also spoke to Amandine, who's in her early 20s, and she said that it depends on whether or not you're eating with members of the older generation. So she told us, I would say one hour and 30 minutes in general for me, but if it's family meals at my grandparents, lunch could last from 12 noon to 4 p.m. So 12 noon aperitif, 4 p.m. coffee, and then you're back at it again at 5 p.m. for goûter, which is the snack. That rings a bell with me whenever I visit my French in-laws. But look, we laugh about it here. We're in Paris. We share an office with architects and we often notice how they will all go out and shop and end up cooking a huge dinner for lunch, even on a Monday, wine included. Whereas, you know, Emma, I've seen you eating takeaway soup as you walk down the street, desperate to get back to your desk. Uh, Jen, you're normally uh, eating off your keyboard some of last night's remains. I'll have an M&M sandwich with some crisps shoved in. Uh, there really is like... Uh, something to say about the differences between the cultures. No, this is not a, just a survey out of nothing. Yeah, and we should point out that Jen and I are regularly breaking the law, that it is technically, in fact, illegal to eat lunch at your desk is in that France. Right? Yes, it's under the Code de Travail. It was temporarily relaxed during COVID to allow for distancing, but that's now back in place. So technically, it is illegal to eat at your desk. I'm not sure anyone's actually been thrown into lunch jail for that. But Yeah, don't report us, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one thing we should mention is that, you know, or, or what I noticed coming to France is that many big companies have canteens so all the employers will go down and spend a good time in the canteen they'll also companies provide restaurant vouchers to staffs which encourages them basically to go out and have a long lunch in a restaurant there is just a culture of acknowledging the importance of lunch even in terms of pay packets you know thanks jen thanks emma let's move on it's our final segment of the week it's a word of the week a french word of the week who's going ahead this week who's got our word it's a fantastic one i'm just looking at it on the screen go on jen I've got it. It's nickel. Okay. And is it a metal, a rare metal? It is a rare metal. <laughs> but when I first heard this word in French, so the backstory is I was working at a French restaurant and I was being trained on how to use some of the equipment. And my coworker kept saying, ah, nickel, Jen, nickel. And I thought she was saying 
Nik El, which has a very different Indeed. meaning. Um, <laughs> it's a, that one is is a yeah. swear word and it's an insult and it's very not rude. very kind. So I was very confused. And eventually I realized that it's spelled N-I-C-K-E-L, like the metal, you know, the same way the English word is spelled. But its actual translation in French is, a, is as a positive affirmation. So it's similar to great, awesome, perfect. Mm-hmm. It can also mean spotless or spick and span. So if you go do some cleaning, uh, someone could say, I want the room to look nickel. I want it to be absolutely spotless, super clean. Mm. It's also a great response uh, for Saba. If somebody says, Saba, how are you? You can say, ah, Saba, nickel. I'm doing great. Um, So yeah, that's a good one. I use nickel. Do you use nickel? Is it something that foreigners can get away with saying in, in French? Uh, I hope so, because yeah, I say it. I've never noticed anyone laughing at me. Uh, it was actually one of the first words that I used from the locals' French word of the day when uh, when I first started at the local. It was one of the first ones that uh, that we did, and I was like, oh, this is handy. So yeah, I use it quite a lot now. Brilliant. And you can find all of those French word of the days and expressions of the day on the local.fr. That brings us to the end of this first episode of the new series. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, John. And thanks, of course, to all of you listeners. We'll be back with more Talking Points next week. 